0: back to the Almost Shameless podcast with Tanya Ray Fox. I am your host, Tanya Ray Fox, and this is episode 14. This has been quite a couple of weeks. It's been two weeks since the last episode. Last week was election week. Obviously, that dragged on from Tuesday until Saturday. It is still technically going on. And so the world, in a lot of ways, feels different since we talked two weeks ago. I think everybody knows where I stand politically in this particular election, so it's been a good week for me. I feel like there's been some massive weight lifted off of my shoulders, and I am really pleased with having just a few days of feeling genuine hope and optimism, and there's been very little of that in 2020, so that's been really nice. I'm sure you can hear it in my voice. You know, it's just it's hard to replicate the the sound of legitimate optimism. And so now you're hearing it. It's also been a sad week. A few days ago, we lost Alex Trebek, who has always played an incredibly big part of in my life. I've been a Jeopardy fan since I was a kid. My grandmother loved Jeopardy. My mom loved Jeopardy. Chris and I DVR Jeopardy so that we have a bunch of episodes to watch and we watch them on weeknights and on nights where we're like hanging out and on weekends, we just throw one on. We really do have like a very special relationship to the show. And if you have a special relationship to Jeopardy, then you have a special relationship to Alex Trebek. He sort of felt like a grandfather figure to many of us because... He's been around since we were born. You know, I don't, there was never a time in my life where Alex Trebek wasn't hosting Jeopardy and it's a massive loss, especially now, you know, it just, it's been a really crazy year and losing somebody who felt like a sense of steadiness and a constant in your life, even though they're not somebody that you know personally can be super jarring. It's always weird when celebrities that you have these relationships to die because, You know, you feel this genuine sense of grief for someone you never met. And I think that's really beautiful. And I certainly have felt that. And I'm grateful that we have a few weeks of recorded episodes still with him. I think it's 30 episodes or so. I know the show will continue on in his legacy. I know whoever they find to take on that job will be a worthy successor. I just know that they'll do a great job with it. We also found out today that we lost Celtics legend, Tommy Heinsohn, who I did actually have a personal relationship with. I did work with him for years at NBC Sports Boston, and I have a very special memory of meeting him the first night that I came in to intern and um, having that moment of realization that I was in this newsroom and I was with Tommy Heinsohn, this larger than life figure, an all time great. You know, a eight-time NBA champion as a player, a two-time NBA champion as a coach, a legendary broadcaster, a two-time Hall of Famer. And I was just standing there thinking, like, holy shit, this is my life. And that memory is so seared into my brain because I remember... Feeling in that moment, like I'm, I'm gonna do. I, I'm meant to do this. I'm meant to do sports media. I'm meant to, to have this as my life and to be a part of this world. Because I felt so at ease and comfortable and proud and burning in that moment. Like this, I don't know how to describe it other than to say, like sometimes you're just in a moment in time where you realize everything is coming together more than you ever could have hoped. And in that moment, standing there meeting Tommy Heinsohn, I had that moment. I had that thought, I had that feeling in my body. And I don't know if I've ever really explained that um, out loud to anybody. I started as an intern in January of 2010 and I left NBC Sports Boston in September of 2013. So over three and a half years of being in that building and being around Tommy and, and he was an incredible testament to loving what you do and loving your role and your space in the world and wanting to do it until the very end. There's just not a lot of people in sports. I can't even think of a single other person with the kind of relationship to a team and a franchise that Tommy Heinsohn had to the Boston Celtics, a player, and then the coach, and then the broadcaster and the level of success that he achieved at every level To have that type of success at every single level and and to have that sustained relationship with a franchise for over six decades is just insane. I mean, you think about what someone like Vin Scully means to Los Angeles and the Dodgers. I mean, imagine if Vin Scully had played for the team and won eight rings and then coached the team, won two rings, and then had that broadcasting career. That's kind of what we're talking about here. It's absolutely insane. He really is in the fabric of Boston and in the fabric of the Celtics and the players over generations and generations, the, the 70s, when he was coaching the 80s players, Bird and and Parrish and Danny Ainge, of course, who went on to be, you know, the GM and, and the modern guys now, Paul Pierce and Isaiah Thomas, you know, put out tweets earlier today. He just meant so much to everybody. And I'm just thinking about him. I'm thinking about my friends and colleagues at NBC Sports Boston, who I know have been spent. Some of them have spent decades with Tommy and I'm thinking of them and of course his family and just really at peace knowing he is back with his wife, Helen, um, who he lost in 2008. I know that that's a happy reunion for him. And so I am happy for him. Oh, my first time shedding tears on the podcast. So that's nice. <laughs> so that was uh, you know, I had to, eulogize my two grandfathers, my two uh, media grandfathers. And I appreciate you bearing with me. Uh, There are a few things I do want to talk about today. The first is just the trajectory of the Patriots and Cam Newton and what happened on Monday night against the Jets. Obviously, I want to talk about what's going on with Tom Brady and the Buccaneers and how that relates to what's going on in New England and some of the reaction to those situations and how it's playing out in social media and in the media at large. I think that we have to have a conversation about nuance in media and the lack thereof in a lot of ways. I also want to talk about the decision-making of uh, leagues in light of coronavirus, and you know, the NBA is trying to restart uh, their 72 game season on December 22nd. That has been settled on between the NBA and the NBA PA. And just like sort of where everyone stands and the confusing rhetoric that's coming out of each league, I think that there's a bit of a double standard. When it comes to these leagues and their relationships to fans during the pandemic, that's really been bothering me. So i want to touch on that. And I have a rant this week. I'm going to make it short and sweet and won't be too long. But looking forward to venting and getting a few things about my life on Twitter lately off my chest. Okay, here we go. That stuff coming up. It finally happened, guys. Cam Newton had an incredible night on a week when Tom Brady totally sucked. And so, of course, it was a little nice for us as Patriots fans, right? It's a little nice, not necessarily when Brady sucks, but that Cam Newton didn't also suck and in fact had a really, really great game against the Jets on Monday night. He was really accurate. He hit a lot of his passes. His chemistry with Jacoby Myers is coming along swimmingly especially with Edelman and Nikhil Harry both out right now. He's had to really rely on him, and that's worked out. Jacoby Myers had over about 160-something receiving yards. He is one of three receivers over the last five years, or three players over the last five years, to have 150 or more receiving yards in a game, Uh, Julian Edelman, Rob Gronkowski and now Jacoby Myers. So he is in excellent company there. It certainly speaks to his, to his route running, to his ability to read defenses, to his knowledge of the playbook and his chemistry with Cam Newton. It's all there. Had another one of those signature Rex Burke head games where he's just sort of the reliable, dependable workhorse running up the middle. It's just, you know, it's pretty clear that Josh McDaniels is doing everything he can to just try to get that that hidden yardage that Rex Burkhead is so good at. And so, it really was an effective offensive performance, especially, you know, for the last the way the last few weeks have gone, they looked really good, you know, um considering they're still missing pieces that they'd like to have there, and it was really encouraging. Like I said, Cam just looked like he had all of the confidence that we have come to expect from him, and he was able to deliver that on the field. He rushed for two touchdowns. He's now set a record for rushing touchdowns through the first seven games of the season. He has eight, and obviously that's come at the expense of the passing game, but that's what we expect from Cam Newton. We expect him to be dangerous with his legs in the red zone. I told you guys that um, at the beginning of the season, you know, uh, that that was something we could expect from him, and that it made him really dangerous, and it has. Um, what we didn't expect was that the Patriots defense would be carved up for three quarters by Joe Flacco and Brashad Perryman. It was a really perplexing performance. Definitely the weaknesses at linebacker and up front you know, they definitely shown through, you know, normally those, those weaknesses are hidden a bit by the fact that the secondary is so good. They've got these lockdown cornerbacks and these big, you know, good physical safeties. And so, you know, this vaunted secondary that the Patriots have had for years really allows the linebackers and defensive line to work with a shorter field and gives them some chances to cover up deficiencies. But that was exposed yesterday by Joe Flacco. Who'd have thought, you know, I spoke with Chris, my fiance, after the game, and we were talking about it. And it was just one of those games where it's like, you just know the Patriots should have done more there. There was no excuse for the way that Joe Flacco was able to pass on them. And and Frank Gore, uh, I think they were maybe underprepared for as well, especially since their uh, run defense isn't the greatest. But generally, it just seems like they were not prepared to p- play Joe Flacco. And yes, the Jets suck. But the Jets have been mostly sucking with Sam Darnold. And what people don't understand is that when you're playing a division rival and they suck with one quarterback, they suck a little differently with a different quarterback. And Joe Flacco has always played the Patriots really well. He is not afraid of them. He is playing to keep his career. You know, he's a backup right now to a 30-year quarterback. This is a former Super Bowl MVP, and he's playing for his career. He knows he wants to stay on an NFL roster in the years to come. He wants to keep getting those paychecks. He wants to keep being a part of the league. And in order to do that, he needs to he needs to do the best that he can with the opportunities that are given to him. So, you know, I don't personally believe in tanking in the NFL. I think that GMs and owners and, you know, Personnel guys can, behind the scenes, can decide that they would prefer to have a shitty season so they can reset. And so they may decide not to go out and get the pieces that they need to improve their team, they may sell off a couple players, they may make it clear that they're rebuilding, but that's very different than intentionally losing games. And last night, it was unbelievable how many people thought that the Jets were trying to lose that game, while Joe Flacco was very clearly not. You know, you can't ask a player who's playing for their career to tank, and he was not. So, you know, he was playing for a lot more than just to try to get one win on the season. It, listen, he's, he has no investment in the jets losing that game and tanking. Why? So they can go draft another QB. That's not him. He doesn't care. That's he... <laughs> so say what you will, but he had a lot to play for. And he, and he put out um, a classic Joe Flacco performance, which is to say he was passing really well and kind of um, taking advantage of the Patriots Patriots bad day in the secondary for three quarters. And then, just totally started to fall apart. And, you know, I said in the middle of the game, like he's going to throw another one of those deep balls and one of those 45-yard passes down the field. He's going to push it too far and he's going to get picked off. It's what he always does. And uh, J.C. Jackson, who had had a pretty difficult game up until that point, was able to pick him off and it kind of swung momentum back toward the Patriots. Eventually, they were able to get a couple three-and-outs, timely three-and-outs in the fourth quarter. They dominated possession. And in the end... The great Nick Folk stepped up just like we all thought, just like we all figured Nick Folk hitting a 51 yard field goal to win the game. It was one of the best, you know, game winning kicks the Patriots have ever had. I mean, it had been since the Vinatieri days that they'd even come close. It's one of the longest uh, game winning field goals that anyone's ever kicked for the Patriots. So it was pretty epic. And considering how badly the Patriots defense played, it's a miracle they won the game because normally that's how they're really staying in it. And instead the offense did their part and really did their job. And that was like, so encouraging to see as they get pieces back, as they get Edelman and Nikhil Harry and Sonny Michelle back, if people can stay healthy, if, if the offensive line can start to uh, stay healthy, it's a great unit. So it's, you know, you start to have these little glimpses of something that could work. And meanwhile, down in Tampa Bay, Tom Brady absolutely has he has one of his worst games he's had in his career. I mean, it was historic. You should some of the stats that came out were absolutely insane. It was his first time in 333 career starts that he was down by 30 at the halftime. Unbelievable. And the thing that people seem to have uh, missed is that in that game, Bruce Arians and Byron Leftwich apparently decided to completely abandon the run game on a historic level. And when I say historic, I am not being hyperbolic. They abandoned the run game entirely. They rushed five times. The whole game, five. They set a record. Two years ago, the Vikings played in a game. They only rushed six times. The Buccaneers one-upped them. So now you've got a team like the Saints who are experienced, experienced, They have everything to play for in the division. And the Buccaneers offense has become completely one-dimensional. They know Tom Brady is throwing the ball. They don't know it like, oh, we suspect it. No, they knew it because they only rushed five times. How are you supposed to succeed in that type of situation? It's unbelievable to me. I, I truly, I'm, I'm not trying to cut Brady and any extra slack. He certainly doesn't need it from me. He's had a pretty excellent season, but you look at a game like that, and you have to wonder, especially after Bruce Arians once again came out and criticized Brady for not hitting open receivers. What is going through his head right now after play calling that one dimensional in a divisional game against an excellent team that is routinely in? the divisional and championship games in the playoffs. You have to imagine Brady's wondering what the fuck is going on. Meanwhile, the Patriots have been dealt a couple of really shitty hands this season. They've been really close to winning some pretty close games under difficult circumstances with delays and no practices and things like that, and they are grinding. And like it or not, the coaches are doing everything they can to put their players in a position to succeed. You know, I tweeted out earlier that it's one of those like things that makes you feel a little bit better as a Patriots fan that, you know, no matter how successful Brady has been in, in Tampa Bay, there are these glimpses into his experience that make us as Patriots fans feel better. And Bruce Arians criticizes Brady on the podium in a way that Belichick never did. Not for, not once in 20 years, did he get out there and say that Brady was the problem in one of their losses? Not once especially not in a loss that bad, not once. And, you know, it's a good reminder that Tampa Bay is not New England and no other coach is Belichick. And Brady knows that. He knows that. There, whether he says it out loud or thinks about it, you know, when he goes to sleep at night or whether it's in his deep in his subconscious, he knows that what he's experienced in Tampa Bay with Arians and the lack of accountability that some of the team seems to take, you know, how much he's is put on his shoulders, that's a burden that I think might get to that to his ego a bit more than he thought it would. So I mean, listen, it's now it's, you know, week nine is wrapped up. The Patriots, uh, they're three and five, and they have a very, very, very long way to go if they want to sniff a chance at a playoff spot, and they're gonna need some help to get there. Uh, The Bills beating the Seahawks this week did not help. The Dolphins beating the Cardinals this week did not help. Unbelievable. I mean, the division is genuinely difficult right now for the Patriots, and it's going to take a lot for them to get anywhere. But I had so much fun watching that comeback last night. I've never felt so happy to see my favorite team be three and five, you know, and to barely beat the shitty Jets. I had a blast. And... You know what? I think that (laughs) I'm going to need to maintain that optimism going into this week against the Ravens because I don't think it will be as fun. I do think that if they can get Gilmore back, maybe the secondary will be able to shore itself up and they certainly will will be more prepared to defend uh, Lamar Jackson as a passer, I believe, than they were with Joe Flacco for all the reasons that I mentioned. So we'll see how that goes down. That stuff coming up. So we've been hearing a lot from the NBA and from owners that the 72 game season that is going to start on January on December 22nd, uh, that's 10 games less than a normal season. So uh, you know, they talked a lot about having to start the season as soon as possible, so they could have as long of a season as possible because they didn't want to lose money. And there's just been for for weeks now, a lot of talk about how we have to save money. We have to save money. We can't delay the season until January. How are we supposed to financially recover from that? We're gonna lose millions. You know, Mark Cuban came out and talked about how they're gonna lose millions and millions of dollars by losing five, you know, home games apiece. And it just, you know, it's it's similar rhetoric rhetoric to stuff we heard from the MLB and from the NFL in terms of not being able to to do a bubble. There's just been a lot of conversation from these leagues, commissioners and owners about how much money this pandemic is costing them. And it's been this breathless sort of complaining as if the people they're talking to are being delivered news they didn't know. You know, like, I don't think you guys understand how much we're going to how much money we're going to lose. If we have to do this, we can't. We, We simply can't. And it's like there's this lack of self-awareness on the part of these leagues. Like They're talking to us like we don't know that the pandemic is bad for business. You you do realize that you're talking to a bunch of people who've lost jobs, industries that are falling apart, people who've lost family members, people who are looking at being evicted because of this pandemic, all because of COVID-19. And you're going to sit here and tell me that, like, you're losing millions and act like it's news? Like, of course you're losing millions. Yeah. You know, they deliver it as if it's like, like, they keep saying it over and over. Like, it's a given. You don't have to talk. There's nobody in this country outside of Jeff Bezos who's not losing money. The is in a in shambles. I'm just kind of sick of hearing about it. Figure it out, just like the rest of us are. You're billion-dollar corporations figure it out like why are you delivering this news like it's we all have to sit back and be like well we need to understand they're losing millions the longer this goes on they're losing millions we got you do what you need to do we'll do what we need to do and when you have sports we'll watch them how about that just stop telling me how much money you're losing i don't i i don't know how much more i can hear about it honestly shall we there is a weird phenomenon that happens on my Twitter. And I don't mean to be annoying by talking about Twitter followers and following and things like that, but hear me out. I promise it's not annoying. I will just like anybody else with, you know, who's on Twitter all day and trying to build, you know, a following. I will tweet certain things that get me a bunch of new followers and I will tweet certain things that lose me a lot of followers. Generally, the rule is if I tweet something funny and cool about sports, I gain a bunch of followers because it's retweeted by someone who has a ton. And then if I tweet something political or politically adjacent or sports political, a bunch of my followers who apparently didn't know I had that specific belief set, unfollow me. Now, here's the thing. I rarely unfollow people because I'm pretty picky about who I follow to begin with. So if I'm going to follow someone, I generally give them the benefit of the doubt that I'm not going to agree with everything they say, but that I feel like they've put out enough content over time that I find them interesting and want to keep a track of what they're saying. I don't know what people think when they go to my page, but just picture this. My banner on my Twitter is a photo of a Black Lives Matter protest for Breonna Taylor. It says, Black Lives Matter? And it says, justice for Breonna Taylor, right on my bio, like right. It's a picture on the banner of my Twitter. So right there, you know, that I'm not only a person with a specific type of social values, but I'm the type of person who will put it front row on my Twitter. Okay. Now, if you, at any point in time, you scroll through my feed, even for a minute over the last six months, there's something political in there or social justice. I have for years written articles about Colin Kaepernick, spoken about social justice in sports community, spoken now so much this year, learned so much and spoken so much about Black Lives Matter, police and police brutality. I have openly shown disdain for the Trump administration. All of these things can be easily deduced. So when I tweet something like I have over the last couple of days about excitement about the election, or how I'm still, you know, offended about the blackballing of Colin Kaepernick or anything like that, I will lose scores of followers. I have lost about 80 followers in the last week. I gained a bunch and then I lose a bunch. And this is kind of how it goes. But all of those people generally are gone after I tweet something in regards to politics. There's the part, the rant part. Why the fuck were you following me in the first place? If these benign tweets are so offensive to you that you come to my page to unfollow me. How did you have to, you have to go to my page to follow me? How did you miss the Black Lives Matter? What What are you doing? Did you, like, I don't understand what people are thinking. It's like, I don't care that you're unfollowing me. I just am so confused as to how you followed me in the first place. How, if you like a tweet and you go to my page and the first thing you see is that, and you know that's something that offends you. Why did you hit the button? It is Just a waste of your time and mine. Honestly, I'm so fucking tired of it. Just numbers falling off because I tweet like, great day to like Kamala Harris. It's not like I'm tweeting like these long rants about Biden or Trump or anyone else. I'm tweeting like just generally liberal democratic stuff. Get a life. Be more picky with who you follow. Do your research, curate your timelines. You know, if you don't want to hear my liberal stuff or you don't want to hear about whatever, fine. Just do your research so you're not wasting our time and so that I can start to develop some sort of consistent following. It's just so crazy. Easily offended is fine. Like whatever, if you're easily offended, whatever. But if you're that easily offended, I don't understand how you were following me in the first place. I truly, 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 truly don't. It's like people have like, they're having a good day. They're in a good mood. They follow me. And then the next day they're like, ah, no, fuck this. I can't do it. It's just like, oh my God. I'm so tired of people not being able to hear a single thing that they disagree with without being triggered. It's not even like I'm talking to you. You don't even want to read something you disagree with. It makes you so uncomfortable that you have to unfollow me so that you don't have to read something you disagree with. So now that I got that off my chest, uh, you know, I, I know you guys, you appreciate this about me. I I can be a little bit of a brat about my social media. It's who I am. I have to own it. I try to rein it in from time to time, but you know, this is my podcast. I use it to vent. Today was the day. Uh thank you so much for coming and listening and and sharing in my little journey over the last couple of weeks and I know that we are all in vulnerable emotional states regardless of our political beliefs or our social situations. Um it's a lot for everybody and just remember I'm not ever trying to diminish other people's experiences when I bring this stuff up. Over the next, you know, month or so, watch some uh, watch some jeopardy. Watch the Malach Trebek, appreciate the final moments of a genuine legend, a person who uh, affected the hearts and minds and brains of generations of Americans. And just remember, life is short. We have to do the best we can while we're here. We have to show each other love and empathy and respect. And we have to listen, especially to people who are telling us that they are hurting and that they are scared. And even when it's hard, and even when we're hearing things we don't wanna hear, we have to acknowledge that oppression, and racism, and sexism, and xenophobia are rooted into our history as Americans. They aren't going anywhere. We have to understand that. We have to come to grips with it. And we have to work to be better. We have to stop ignoring the signs decade after decade after decade that this is a problem with us at the core of who we are in this country and that we are also a country uniquely poised to fix it and change ourselves for the better. All right. Thank you guys once again for coming and hanging with me and listening to me. Welcome back, Alex Cora. We are happy to have you. I'll see you next week. Bye.